0: Sometimes I have to give a little bit of a snigger at some of the things that people say in church. Every now and then, I've had this a couple of times, not often, but every now and then, I've had people come to me and say, oh, if only we could have lived in the days of the early church. When the church was pure and good. Yeah, really, exactly. The church in its purest form, no denominations. No theology, just pure church. And I'm like, have you read the Bible? <laughs> have you read the Bible? In particular, have you read First Corinthians? I mean, we have denominations in our area. They had denominations in the church. They had Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus groups. Um, we could do the same today. All those for Chris in that corner. All those for Stephen in that corner. All those for Ronnie. Bev, you can go outside. Um, You know, we we could do that, right? But uh, that's what Corinth was. And you know some of the things that have gone on in the Corinthian church, right? There's a guy shacking up with his stepmother. I mean, is that just not dodgy and wrong? People were getting drunk at communion. And my issue with that is, what on earth were they putting in those tiny little cups? (laughs) Right? How strong is that, that you can get drunk on that? There were those in the church. That, so there's the one guy who's in with his, mother, with his stepmother and it's just sex is fine. And there's another group of saying sex is evil in every, in any form. You can't even have sex if you're husband and wife. In fact, better to not get married at all. These bizarre, divergent views. The church itself was a a chaotic mess. If I was Paul, and if I was writing the letter to the the Corinthians, my letter would have been a lot shorter. My letter would have been, shut this down now. That would have been my recommendation to the church at Corinth, because it's a mess. And in many ways, the church mirrored the society, the community, the city that it was in. Athens, where we were at last week, was the intellectual capital of the empire, the cultural center of the Roman world. If if Athens was the kind of Oxford, sophisticated creme de la creme of the empire, Corinth was Las Vegas. Lights, glitter, and immorality of every kind. The people at, at Corinth were very proud of the temple that sat up on the hill above the city and looked down. It was the, the temple of, to Venus, and the temple to Venus employed 1,000 female slaves. Well, employed is a, not the word to use, perhaps. Many of these ladies were given by their owners to the temple for the use of the temple. It was prostitution in the name of religion, it had become a catchphrase at the time to, to go Corinthian, to Corinthianize, and it meant to live immorally, to live without any morals at all. It was a city completely out of control. It was a city of, of, of vice and indulgence and, and sensual pleasure. And you can kind of see how the the, the city mirrors itself in the church, where, where what's going on in the church is kind of mirrored in, 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 in the church itself, right? So, so you've got these weird views on sexuality where do anything you like, it doesn't matter, or no sex at all, everything is evil. And that's really just a reaction to the city itself, a reaction to the culture of those who are saying, well, the culture does it, we'll just do it, or the, the church saying, well, the culture's bad, so we're just not going to have anything to do with the culture at all. It's just a reaction to the culture. Getting drunk in church, well, that was the norm at every other temple in the city. Every other temple you get drunk there on a Sunday morning or a Friday night or whatever it is. That was just part of worship, so that just comes into the church as well. And when it comes to church services, Paul actually has to say at the end of his letter, listen, God is not a God of chaos. And the chaoticness of what goes on a Sunday morning is a reflection of the chaoticness of your city and not a reflection of of God and God's sovereign care over creation. Now, the letter, 1 Corinthians, gets written by Paul a couple of years, perhaps, after he'd been in the city, after he'd arrived in the city. In Acts chapter 18, we're going to read this morning, Paul's first encounter with Corinth. Now, we've been tracking Paul's movements for the last little while now, through Greece, through the north of Greece. He's now into the south of Greece, uh, he was in Philippi for not very long. Ended up in beaten and in jail. From there, he went to Thessalonica. He was in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, three Fridays, for less than a month. Got chased out of there. Went down to Berea. The guys in, in Thessalonica chased him in Berea and chased him out of Berea. Where he then ended up in Athens. Um, We're not sure how long he was in Athens, but it doesn't seem like he was there much longer either. So Paul has gone from city to city to city. There's been four cities in a row, all of them that he hasn't spent, well, much more than two or three months, perhaps, per city at the most. In each city, he's left a little fledgling church. In each city, he's been chased out. He hasn't just, you know, left of his own free will. He's been escorted out of the city limits and told, do not come back. And now he arrives in Corinth, and he's going to stay 18 months in Corinth. He's going to stay there for a year and a half. So after a month here and two months there, now he settles down for 18 months, and um, he's got all this time to teach and instruct and train, he's got... Timothy and Silas have come and joined him in establishing this church. He meets Aquila and Priscilla, a wonderful couple who are going to be Paul's partners in ministry for many years. And and, and they spend all this time establishing 18 months to establish this, this great church. And the result of it is the letter to 1 Corinthians. And it's kind of weird That he spends three weeks in Thessalonica and says, you guys are great. You guys are awesome. The gospel springs out of you guys. It's fantastic. He spends 18 months in Corinth and says, you guys are nasty and a mess and you need to fix yourselves up. Let's read where it all started. Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear in my conscience, in my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many other Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. (coughs) One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But this involves questions and words about names and your own law. Settle the matter amongst yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. And then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Isn't it, wouldn't it have been fun to be part of a court proceedings back in those days? I think that ministry in Athens, and not just Athens, but in the previous three cities, had to have been a little draining for Paul. In Athens, he's gone toe-to-toe with the intelligentsia of the age. Some believed, many sneered. And so what is Paul's frame of mind when he arrives In Corinth, having been sneered at in Athens, having been chased out of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, what's his frame of mind when he arrives in Corinth? Well, if you flip over a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this, chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then listen to this. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. You see that? As Paul arrives in the city of Corinth, what's, what's going on in his mind? What is he thinking? Where, 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 what are, his, where, where are his emotions at? What, that, what frame of mind is he in? He says, I came to you in much fear and trembling. I think one of the older versions says, much afraid, which is quite a cool phrase. Much Well, it's not a nice phrase, but it expresses it nicely, doesn't it? Much afraid. And you kind of go, Really? That doesn't sound like Paul. I mean, Paul is this super uber apostle who, who lives by faith and is not afraid of anything. Um, he's fearless out there. Uh, he, he, he stands up to all sorts of opposition and oppression. And, and he's like, he's, he's up there and in everyone's faces. And Paul filled with fear? Surely not. And yet he says, I come to Corinth filled with fear. And you kind of go, well, why, Paul? What are you afraid of? Is he afraid of the reception that he's going to get in Corinth? Is he afraid of being beaten up again? (laughs) Is he afraid of the the conflicts that he's going to face, without without doubt, in the city? In particular, as he arrives in the city, knowing that the gospel is not going to be there to challenge the intelligence and culture of the age, but is going to have to challenge the gross immorality of the city. Is he just a little jaded and worn out from the experiences that he's had so far? And even though there's been some good response to the gospel, there's been a lot of, lot of hard response to the gospel. There's been a lot of rejection. And in all of this, I, I, I'm not sure which it is, or a combination of all of them, maybe something else altogether. And in all of this, Paul arrives in this city fearful and afraid. And you've got to to see the grace of God in this, that he encounters Aquila and Priscilla in this city. And these two become partners in ministry with Paul for many years. But here's the thing. Aquila and Priscilla are refugees. They've had to run away from Rome. And the reason they've had to run away from Rome is because Claudius, the emperor, has just expelled all Jews from the city. And he's kicked all Jews from the city because of the uprising around the Crestus, a man called Crestus, which is Jesus. And at that stage, amongst the understanding of many people at the time, Christianity was still a sect of Judaism. And of course, the Jews are still arguing amongst themselves and just don't like this idea that a Messiah has apparently come and the Messiah has died. And it's clear they've caused such a stir in the city of Rome that the Roman emperor said, I'm done with this. I'm not going to deal with all of your goings-on, all Jews out the city. And so Priscilla and Aquila have had to run along with others. I don't know what they've left behind in Rome, but they haven't had you know three months' notice to get out of the place. It's probably you're out of here by tomorrow morning. Our soldiers are escorting you out. And so they're refugees, and Paul joins them, and they they get together to make tents. Um, Paul realized they make tents, he can make tents too, so that they, they join forces. And in order to make well, tents, some of you go camping, and you have it easy. Some there, there's some of you that go camping. Some, someone was telling me last week, oh, it was it was it was Greg and Shannon. I think Greg spent an hour and a half putting his tent up, and was it Shannon who pushed a button and. <laughs> You know, one of those pop-up things. Wonderful, right? Some of you are going camping next week, and you have your nylon and your bendy poles, and you know, you poke someone in the uh, in the eye, or I don't know. You, you, back in these days, the tents were made of leather, and if you're going to work with leather, leather needs to be nice and soft. And so, you, if you're going to work with leather, you need to be where the leather workers or the tanners are, and the tanners are out of town, downwind, because the way that the best thing to do or the second best thing to do with leather, the the very best thing to do with with cowhide is to keep the cow's insides in place. (laughs) The second best thing to do with leather is to make it soft by leaving it in a bucket of wee. And the way that you would do that is that they would go and collect the night pots from the city early in the morning and take it out the city and fill buckets there and soak their... And it's actually quite a thing, isn't it? I mean, some of you will remember that, right? You, you put your, your one bucket out, and then 10 minutes later, you open the door and pick up your bottle of milk. It's quite an exchange, isn't it? I mean, talk about, you know, it's one thing going from water to wine. But um, anyway, <laughs> just it's just a thought that occurred to you. Anyway, so, but no, they take these buckets of, of, of we, and they... The, the, you know what it's like when you haven't. We forgot to flush the toilet last night, and that little bit of aroma in the morning. Can you imagine buckets of that? So, so that's where Paul and Priscilla and Aquila are. That's where they're working on the edges of town, amongst the refugees. And Paul's out there, and he's working night and day. And once a week on the Sabbath, he gets to go to the synagogue, and engage with the people at the synagogue. And um, And reason with the Jews there. But there is just in this, just the kind of people that God is able to use to establish and expand his kingdom. That God uses these refugees on the edge of town for the purpose of his kingdom and for the establishing of his church. It's like God can use anyone. If you can use a refugee, you think of all the refugees that have headed into Europe in the last couple of years. You just wonder what God is doing there. And Paul will allude to this later on, actually, in, in 1 Corinthians, in the letter there, where, where he actually writes to the church and he says, God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And he says, then, none of you were wise, were you? And I wonder, I'll, I'll pick this up later, but I do wonder if, again, there's a bit of a reaction to what had happened in Athens in dealing with the wise men of the age and now he comes to Corinth, and it's kind of <laughs> the other end of the scale. And then Timothy and Silas arrive, and it seems that they may come with a little bit of financial support, perhaps from Philippi. And, um, and that allows Paul to now devote his time entirely to preaching the gospel. He, he stops working with tents, and, um, and he devotes his time to preaching and reasoning. But you can sense Paul's frustration in this, where well, he's in the synagogue, he's reasoning with the people, and, and, and it gets to the point where the Jews become abusive. That's where that's what it actually says, right? They became abusive with Paul. Um, they opposed him and become abusive. And, and and you get the sense of frustration when Paul just goes, I'm done with you guys. I'm shaking out my clothes, I'm done. I've had it. I've had it with preaching the gospel to the Jews in their synagogues, and they just constantly abuse. And he says, I'm I'm done. And I think, I think I'm right in saying this, that it's not just that he's done with the people at Corinth and the Jews in Corinth. He's like, I'm done with the synagogue in general. Because from here, he'll go to Ephesus, and there's no mention of him going to the synagogue in Ephesus. And he ends up in Rome, and there's no mention of him going to the synagogue in Rome. It's not to say that he gives up on the Jewish people. And again, you read in Romans how he's I, I long for my nation to come to Jesus, but I'm, I'm done. I'm done within the synagogues and fighting with you guys and getting nothing but abuse in return. And he shakes his robe, and he goes next door, <laughs> which is, you know, a bit of a, he's still in their face, isn't he? But you, can you get? I get the, a bit of the frustration that Paul must be feeling. Of just like, ugh. And so he moves right next door, and the good news is that many people, including Crispus, the synagogue leader, <laughs> becomes a follower of Jesus. So it's this, it's this funny thing, right? Of, of I'm tired of the synagogue, and I'm tired of the fighting, and I'm tired of, of just this constant opposition. And yet the synagogue ruler becomes a follower of Jesus. And he joins Paul in the house next door, at the house of Titus. And, and it's great when you read that. And then you read that many other Corinthians heard the gospel, believed, and were baptized. And you think, well, well, this is a good thing. Surely Paul is on the up. He must be filled with great joy. There's lots of baptism. There's lots of belief. Even the synagogue ruler, the rabbi there, this, this has got to be going great. But I have to wonder if that's really what's going on in Paul's mind when you when you consider what God says to Paul, and I have to think that it's not Paul going woohoo, and God comes along saying, "Now, Paul, don't be afraid," because God doesn't need don't be afraid if Paul's all on top of himself. And I just think I just get the sense, in, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but you read that bit in one Corinthians: "I came to you with fear and trembling, and I came to you in in weakness, and and then then reading you know, just, just the frustration here." And then hearing what God says to him. And again, it it might sound weird because he's had some success in Thessalonica. There's a good church growing there and he's heard about that and he's already like, yeah, that's an awesome church. And there's been good stuff going on in Berea and and, and there's been some belief in Athens, but they just, "Mm, I can just get this. Maybe he's just going, I'm not as successful as I thought I would be. This hasn't transformed the world like I thought it would. And there's just this something in Paul that's going, ah. And God sends in in the night a vision to Paul, and the words of God become life to his soul. And God says essentially four things to him. And he says, first of all, Paul, do not be afraid. He arrives in the city filled with fear and trembling. And God speaks to Paul right to his heart and says, Paul, do not be afraid. Fear of a beating, fear of failure, fear of losing approval, fear of a loss of dignity, fear of what the neighbors might say. And God says to Paul, do not fear. You know what the most often repeated command in the Bible is, right? Do not lie. No, it's not that one. Do not covet your, your neighbor's Aston Martin. No, it's not that one either. It's do not fear. That's the most repeated command in the Bible. Somebody said it was, it's repeated 365 times, one for every day. I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't counted. Um, but that command, do not Fear. And you wonder, again, it's like, what is Paul afraid of? And in some senses, I don't know that it matters what he's afraid of. The simple truth is, do not be afraid. What are you afraid of? Afraid of the future and what might be? Afraid of the past and how that school haunts you? Fear of where your children will end up? A fear of losing your reputation. A fear of losing the approval of those that matter. A fear of failure at work, in relationship. Perhaps even a fear of this is weird, but a fear of success, what that might bring. A fear of spiders. That's okay, you're allowed to be afraid of spiders, that's fine. Um, It says there somewhere in the Bible, fear nothing but the eight-legged arachnids. And your wife, you can fear that as well. Um, But other than that, other than that, do not be afraid. And I think often we are, we're fearful people. It's not to say, uh, be stupid, right? It's not like leave your front door open at night with big flashing lights. Uh, Don't be afraid, no, no, don't be stupid, that's part of the command, don't be stupid, right? So lock your doors, but do not be afraid. And we live with such fear. Not just fear of the dark, um, and fear of crime, and fear of lack of electricity, and what that may mean, but it's the, the internal fears and the, that, that wrestle with our emotions and leave us, <clears throat> and here's God saying, do not be afraid. Some old dead guy said that it is the fear of God that drives out all other fears. The fear of God drives out all other fears. When we're living under his gaze and we're aware of his approval and aware of his love, suddenly it doesn't matter that others disapprove. Suddenly it doesn't matter that we're living under the gaze of someone else. We're living under his gaze. He watches, he looks, he sees. Do not be afraid. And I just have to think, what comfort that must have brought Paul. And I love it, too, that God spoke to Paul in the night. Because when are you most afraid? I don't know about you, but yeah, when the lights are out. The second thing that Paul, that God says to Paul is, do not be silent. Right, so two commands. Do not be afraid, do not be silent. Keep speaking. Come on, Paul, keep going. I wonder if Paul had just been, had one of those Monday mornings that preachers often have. You, you know why pastors get Mondays off? It's so that they can spend the morning going through the classified adverts for another job. That's, it's almost always because, my, you know, what have I done? Oh my goodness. I don't know if I can go back there. Um, has Paul got tired of preaching? Is Paul ready to take up tent making as a full-time job? And God says to Paul, don't stop. Don't stop. Don't give up. Don't go home. go home, Keep on speaking. In fact, Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, he had the same issue once. Where he also is making no headway at all. He's preaching and not a single person wants to listen to his message. He arrives at church on Sunday morning and it's empty. Even his family don't come to hear him, right? That's how bad it is. No one. And he says at once, I'm going, to just, I'm going to just stop speaking them. I'm just not going to preach. I'm just not going to speak the word of the Lord. And he says, when I tried to shut my mouth, your word was like fire in my bones. I couldn't keep silent. I think God kind of saying the same thing to Paul. Paul, you, you can't keep silent. My word will, it, it's burning inside you. Keep speaking. Don't give up. I wonder if Paul is, again, a little jaded, a little frustrated, a little tired, perhaps burnt out. And there's God saying, if you don't speak, you'll burn up. It's got to come out. So Paul, keep speaking. And that message that I read in 1 Corinthians where he says, I came to you in much fear and trembling. He said in that passage, I don't know if you caught it, where he says, I resolved to bring to you the message of God. God. And he says elsewhere, just around that same place, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And then he quotes this. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the the, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And then he says, where's the wise man? Where's the philosopher of this age? Well, they're in Athens, right? I mean, he's just come from there. He doesn't just say these things as a random thing. He's just had the experience of the philosophers and the so-called wise men. And he says, where are they? And again, you just got to think, is this some kind of reaction to what had gone on in Athens? Having spent so much time in debate there, and and, and here he says, you know, God made foolish the wisdom of this world, and that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man, and Paul is not saying, therefore, I am anti-intellectual. He says, no, no, I'm speaking a wisdom that this world cannot understand. And then, in the midst of all that, he says this, when I was among you at Corinth, I resolve to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. And I don't think that Paul is regretting what he preached in Athens, because in Athens he preached Christ and him crucified too. But I think there's this, the resolution of when he arrives in this city is that, that God is reminding him what, what, of this just a couple of months after arriving in the city. Keep preaching, Paul. Keep the gospel front and center. Keep it about Jesus. Maybe Paul's thinking about that recent move from the synagogue and, and wondering and, and second-guessing himself. Should I have left? Should I have stuck around in this, this nagging fear in the back of his mind that the other Jews are going to come and get me anyway and start a riot like they did in Philippi? And, 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 you know, and God's, God's word to Paul is, keep on speaking. Now, what do you speak about? I think for some of you, the message is, will you please shut up? I don't know if any of you live in a house like that where it's just like, can you just stop? Um, but what is the general and overall content of your speech? And it's not to say when you go and buy a pie and coke from the garage, you buy, you buy it in Jesus' name. It's not being weird and stupid. But do we ever speak of our Lord and His kingdom outside of church on a Sunday morning? Is His name ever on our lips beyond just, you know, at Bible study? Where it's safe? What is it that you resolve to know above all things? Is it Christ and Him crucified? Is is it the word of hope in the gospel that comes through in your speech? Or is it the word of condemnation and judgment? Again, it's not to be the weird uber-religious nut, but to, be, in gentleness, speak the gospel. Perhaps many of us are just the silent type, because we seldom say anything about Jesus. And God would say, do not be afraid, do not be silent. And then 30, the wonderful promise from God, I am with you. So the commands, do not fear, do not be quiet, and they come with a promise, and I am with you. I am at your side. God never leaves us alone. We are never abandoned. William Tyndale um, was the, the English guy who first translated the Bible into English. And his translation is a little different to the NIV or whatever version is you read this morning. Um, and he has some wonderful English uh colloquialisms and quaint way of speaking as they did 600 years ago. And so when, he, when he's translating the story of Joseph, so you remember Joseph, he's um, kidnapped by his brothers, sold into slavery, uh, ends up in Potiphar's house where he is attempted to be seduced by his boss's wife who claims rape. He ends up in prison and he's in prison for 14 years <laughs> And uh, Tyndall says this, and he translates it like this. He says, God was with Joseph, and he was a lucky fellow. (laughs) Don't you like that, right? Sold into slavery, accused of rape, end up in jail. God was with him. He was a lucky fellow. God is with you in your discouragement. Praise the Lord. in your discouragement in your frustration in your doubt in your fear and uncertainty you're a lucky guy cuz god is with you and i do wonder if paul actually felt alone and it's that weird thing right how can he be alone he's got uh, timothy and silas with him he's got aquila and priscilla with him he's in titus's home he, you know he's surrounded by people but have you ever been in that place where you're surrounded with people, but you're all alone? Have you ever had that kind of experience? Just to be somewhat culturally relevant, like I was trying to be last week, the offspring singer song. Uh, Have you ever been in that place where everybody, you're in a room where you, but nobody knows your face, nobody recognizes you, you're surrounded by a crowd, but you're all alone? I wonder if Paul felt a bit like that, because sometimes it is like that, it's like that ministry where you feel like sometimes you're surrounded by people, but you're all alone. We've got three elders in our church now, and it's great to know that Stephen is with me and that Ronnie is with me, but it's better to know that God is with me. Do not be afraid. Do not be silent. God is with you. And then by way of encouragement, God says this to Paul. He says, I have many people in the city that are mine. And, and what God is saying in this is, listen, Paul, there are lots of people here who are going to become Christians. There are a lot of people here who are going to come into the, king, into the kingdom. And your job is to preach the gospel so that they can hear it, so that they can come into the kingdom. But I've got lots of people in the city waiting to, to come to faith. So get on with the job, Paul. There's lots of people here. It's your job to tell them. And, and, and there is great comfort in, in this for Paul because it reminds Paul it's God's kingdom and it's God's work. And God's kingdom will grow because God is doing it. And God has a future for the church in Corinth, even though the city has got 1,000 prostitutes, and even though the city is the the, the very bottom of the pit of debauchery, God has a purpose and a plan for the city and for a church in the city. God rules and God reigns and his kingdom will be established right here in the midst of darkness. Paul, I have many people in the city. What a great encouragement. What a great encouragement to us that God is at work, that God's purposes prevail, and when you're wondering about your uncertainties and your doubts and your fears, and how's it going to go, and whether that's at work or in the home or, or in ministry, and to be able to go, God's in this. God has many people. God has a purpose. God has plans beyond what you ever thought or imagined. And you know how this turns out. I mean, I, I think it's hilarious how it goes, right? We read that Crispus, the synagogue leader, becomes a believer, And so the synagogue then appoint another guy to be their leader, a guy called Sosthenes. And he, a couple of months later, leads a delegation to the court, dragging Paul to the court in the hopes that Paul will be booted out of the city. He's probably heard how how well that worked in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Let's just do the same thing again. And he drags Paul to Gallio, who is the... Kind of what well, he's the proconsul, which is like the kind of the governor of the city, and for those history buffs here, Galio is the brother of Seneca. Seneca was the tutor of Nero, and Seneca and Galio both commit suicide because Nero tells them they should, just for fun. And Paul gets dragged. To the, the, the officials, he is accused of, of just this ridiculousness. And, and you've got to go, you've got to be thinking, Paul's sitting there going, Here we go again. I've seen this movie before, right? And it's all happening again. Another beating, some more jail time. If I'm lucky, they'll escort me out the city again. But instead, what happens is that Gallio kind of turns the tables and says, If this was about murder or theft you've come to the right guy. But it's about words and debate about your religion. Sort out yourselves. I'm not interested. (laughs) And so the tables are turned and instead of Paul getting a beating, Sosthenes, the new synagogue leader, gets a beating. And then something unusual and somewhat unexpected happens because Paul leaves the city of Corinth and a year later, writes a letter to the, city of, to the church in the city of Corinth, and he says in the letter, greet Sosthenes. Now, there may have been a thousand people called Sosthenes in the city. But, you know, what are the chances? And I just think that's kind of hilarious, isn't it? Paul, I have many people in the city, people you wouldn't believe, Sosthenes. Think of the irony of the poor synagogue guys. Crispus, the synagogue leader, becomes a Christian. And he leaves and they're like, oh, idiot. What are we going to do? Let's point another guy. Sosthenes, you're the man. Sosthenes gets beaten up and then becomes a Christian. And the synagogue have to go, oh, another one. <laughs> and a couple of years later, Paul is greeting Sosthenes, the guy that got beaten up by the crowds for trying to have Paul kicked out the city. I have many people in the city, Paul, people you won't believe who are going to come to faith in me. You don't have to give up. You don't have to lose heart. Paul, you've, you've given up on the Jews. You've given up on the synagogue. And what happens? The two synagogue leaders become followers of Jesus. See how this goes, Paul? You don't need to be discouraged and despairing. You don't need to be filled with fear and doubt and be much afraid. I said at the beginning that Paul stayed here for 18 months, much longer than anywhere else. Do you know why he stayed for 18 months? Because of what God said to him. Right, he has the vision in the night. God appears to him and says, do not be afraid. Don't be quiet. I'm with you. Got lots of people in the city. Full stop. So Paul stayed. 18 months. Why did he stay? Because God spoke. Because God encouraged him. And because he hears God saying don't be afraid, speak up I'm with you, he stayed. When you know God is with you you can keep going. You can keep going. I think here's our our, kind of big takeaway for for this week for us, is that Paul arrives in the city feeling the discouragement, feeling burnt out, facing a huge task in front of him. Is he going to do it? He's thrust into this place of all nastiness. He's worried about the churches that have been left behind. He's concerned for what the future might hold for him. There's a real threat of jail and a beating again. There is discouragement. There is doubt. There is stress. He's worried about his finances. He's having to work every day to fix tents. The weight is on him. If you go and read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 or 12 or somewhere there, where Paul outlines all the things that he's in fear of. And in the midst of that, it's not just the fear of the beatings and being mugged by bandits. It's the weight of the churches and the pressure that he felt. And he talks in 2 Corinthians about being a jar of clay, just weak. Ever feel a bit like that? The pressure, the weakness. I'm a jar of clay. Can I cope? I'm afraid of being mugged in Pinetown. This is not Paul the superhero. This is not victorious Christian living. You can do anything, up you go. Woohoo. Let's get you, you know, G'd up for the week. This is a man who is tired and weary and burdened. And you've been there. I know you, well, if you haven't, you're about to. You will one day. Burdened, tired, broken, weary, broken-hearted, And you don't have to live in that. You don't have to live in that place of brokenness and despair and doubt and sadness and fear. Because do not fear. Don't be silent. I'm with you. There's people here you don't know about. Discouraged, doubting, weak, weary, fearful, much trembling, much afraid, burdened, concerned, working night and day to make ends meet. And in those dark moments, to remember those words do not fear, do not be quiet. I am with you. There are many who are mine. And so he stayed. So he stayed. Stay the course. Keep on keeping on. Persevere to the end. Don't fear. Keep the cross at the center. Reflect on what a lucky fellow or fellow <laughs> you you are. And be assured that his plan is greater than yours. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I think many of us here today are tired, weary, discouraged, sad, broken-hearted, wounded, some of us live with fears, some of us are, are pursued by our fears of the past and what happened then, some of us are fearful of our future, many of us are afraid of what others may think. Well, what, what encouragement there is this morning in your word to see in Paul, this so-called superhero of the faith, a man who recognized his weakness, a man who is weary and tired and fearful, much afraid, a clay pot. But Lord, to know that you're bigger than all of this, that you call us not to fear, because we are loved by you, our approval is from you, that our hope and our future is in you, that you call us with boldness to speak out, to hold the cross before us, to know nothing but Jesus and Him crucified, and to reflect on what a what lucky fellow I am, but by your grace drive this into our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name, Amen. And the kettle has boiled. <laughs>